and welcome back to the Meet the Translator podcast. My name is Dot and today I'll be joined by Alessio Armanita, Andrew Bell and Silvia Romano for an episode on medical translation. I'll be finding out what medical translation consists of, the challenges involved, what skills are needed to be a medical translator and much more. Enjoy! Welcome to my podcast. It's really lovely to have you all here today. We've got Sylvia, Alessio, and Andrew. Um, so, and today's episode is about medical translation. So, do you each want to give a little introduction about yourself, what you do, and how you became a medical translator? Alessio, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, Dot. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm Alessio. I'm an Italian translator and I translate medical and marketing content. I translate from English, French, and Spanish into Italian, but for medical translations, I only translate from English to Italian. <laughs> Andrew, what about you? So, hi everyone, uh, I'm Andrew. I translate from Spanish, Portuguese, and Catalan into English, and I mainly work in medical translation. Very occasionally I'll do something else, but mainly medical. I started my career as a translator in September 2020, and before that I did an MA in translation. So the whole translation journey started in 2019, so that's about three years now, just over three years. Okay, yeah. Sylvia, um, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi everyone, hi Dot, thank you. Uh, I'm Silvia. I, I'm an Italian translator too. I translate from English, Turkish and Portuguese into Italian, mainly the fields of marketing, uh, medical, uh, automotive and sailing and tea trade and other very small niches. It's a really interesting mix of different <laughs> things you've got there. <laughs> yeah. They say you shouldn't mix like uh, hobbies and work. I, I can only mix those. Like, my, the only way my life works is if I mix the two. <laughs> so that's why I have this interesting mix. I mean, it's, yeah, it definitely sounds, definitely sounds interesting. I bet you don't really get bored very easily. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so um, I feel like the medical field is like quite a broad field. I feel like there's a lot of different translation that goes on within it probably I mean I don't really know a lot about it to be completely honest so I thought it'd be interesting to hear you each say what kind of medical texts you translate just to see like the difference between them so Alessio what what kind of medical texts do you translate? Yeah as you said Dot uh, there are a lot of types of texts you can translate in the medical field. Um, I've translated a lot of marketing materials for um, medical equipment, for example. I even did transcreations um, for, um, for medical stuff. Uh, so, as you said, it can be either a more technical text, um, so, you know, cl clinical trials, um, scientific research, patient uh, information leaflets, but it can also involve more creative stuff like advertising campaigns, social ads, and, um, and so on. It's a variety of types of texts, not just the more technical one that one might think that are more common, but actually medical translation mean, means a lot uh, of things, not just the, the more technical 
stuff. Mm-hmm. I do find actually doing doing these podcast episodes on different specialisations, a lot of them actually do overlap and because I'm planning a future episode about marketing translation on its own, but like you know, marketing translation can be medical translation, which also can probably be like <laughs> loads of other <laughs> different kinds of translation, I guess. Um so what about you, Sylvia? What kind of uh, text do you mainly translate? Yeah, just like Alessio, I also do a lot of marketing, um, also packaging, for example, which is another interesting type of text for me. Um, mm-hmm. I've also done some leaflets, both patient-facing and like doctor or healthcare practitioner-facing documents. So, um, and, and also it's quite difficult to define like medical translation, for example, with uh, Silvia Martinelli, uh, which you may have seen on LinkedIn, we interact quite a lot. We translated a leaflet on autism and bilingualism in children. So it's that medical. I don't know. It, it's it's quite complex, and uh, and that was a very interesting project. Uh, I've also done some information materials on like new drugs uh, for nurses and doctors. Um, I've also translated uh, parts of a manual of use for deep TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation machine, uh, which is used to treat depression and other conditions. Uh, And that manual was like such a mixture of different types of text. You had very technical materials on the functioning of the machine. So there was like physics and mathematics, also chemistry. Uh, You also had questionnaires for the patients. Also, I mean, instructions for the actual um, oh my God. <laughs> for the actual doctors and practitioners who were going to use the machine, uh, informational materials for the patients. It was really a variety. There was also legal parts that you needed to translate. So, um, for example, I don't do legal, so that's one part I'm not really confident in. But sometimes you get the whole project, you cannot say, okay, this is fine, this is not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, I've done both technical more technical and marketing uh, texts. It's interesting as well having like such a mix of different things within one project. Like, I guess it keeps it interesting again, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, during my masters, I, I like one of my specialisms was technology. So, like, medical equipment is very close to that, and it's quite interesting. I also mm-hmm. do market research uh, for medical equipment. Okay. Interesting. What about you, Andrew? So I don't do anything creative, so I'm going to be the stereotypical medical translator here. So I mainly do, it's 50-50 for me. 50% is medical journal articles, uh, which are usually uh, doctors writing about their experiences with patients with diseases uh, and how they treated the patient which is really interesting because you never do the same subject twice. And even if you do do the same subject, it's from a different angle, a different experience. So it's always something new. And then the other 50% uh, is mainly clinical trial documentation. So that's like really broad in itself. But my niche within that is mainly adverse event reports, which... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's when something goes wrong in a clinical trial and they have to do a report about what reaction occurred when this patient took the drug 
also communication with ethics committees. So they're kind of linked in a way. So when people organize a clinical trial, they need to get permission from an ethics committee, which basically says that the clinical trial is ethical, they're not taking advantage of people, that it's safe. Uh, so that's quite a common document to do as well. And then the other things that come along once every few months would be like a medical report. I was told, although it's not happened to me, that you do get a lot of medical reports in like autumn because people will go to Spain and like fall over and break their leg. <laughs> and then <laughs> they need to get their reports translated from Spanish to English so they can continue treatment. They can continue treatment in the UK when they come home. But that's not actually happened to me, but a few people have said that to me. And then mm. I've had a couple of autopsy reports as well, which sounds quite like grim but it's not actually that bad it's very methodical the way it's written so they just tell you how much each organ weighs which I suppose if you don't like that kind of stuff it's probably a bit like nauseous <laughs> to hear about it but I actually quite enjoy doing that but I've only done about two or three of them apart from that it'll be like the random general text you get every now and then I didn't even know that, like, I see, I would have had no idea what's even in, like, an autopsy report or, like, <laughs> any of these things. Like, it does sound interesting, but I'm not sure that I could personally do that. I think I would struggle. Other than, I guess, I was going to ask what are the challenges that come with translating it, other than, like, obviously getting past the bits that might make you a bit squeamish. Like, what, <laughs> what would you say are the, like, biggest difficulties and challenges um when translating medical content anyone <laughs> mm, i can go <laughs> uh, i think the most difficult thing is looking for uh, terminology i mean usually um there is a as for all technical texts there's a there's a correspondence one to one so for one word a specific word in english there is one in italian so usually even if you want to do a quick research you can go on wikipedia just switch the languages and see very quickly but of course the um, the thing i usually do is apart from the glossaries uh, official ones um, for Italian medical terms that you find online. I read a lot of articles on the specific topic. So as more articles you read, the more you get the idea of what you're going to translate and the words that you're going to choose. So I think that's the most difficult thing in general. But specifically for the combination English to Italian, uh, I'd say register is very challenging because... English is generally more s simple compared to Italian. Uh, I mean, uh, Italian use, uses a very high register for medical content, even if it's just for advertising or social ads. I mean, it's not as high as for clinical trials, but still, the general public uses a, a more specific terminology for medical stuff. So the, there's this switch between English and Italian for, for the register. You need to go to a higher level of register. So, yeah, that's it for me. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, yeah. actually. I, I would also add that for me, one of the main challenges is actually knowing when leaving something in English is okay, because this happens a lot, especially with new... 
new drugs, new, I don't know, new names, new procedures, very often they are left in English, like their names or acronyms. And it's, <laughs> I mean, you, sometimes your first instinct is to translate it. And then you, you discover that everything is left in English, even in Italian, like even in the most Italian publication you can find. Um, that's quite challenging, sometimes even annoying, because maybe you, you just spent like 10 minutes researching it and coming up with an excellent <laughs> translation and you find out you, you could just leave it in English. Um, and yeah, and, and for me personally, it's also quite sad because I, I see the other side of the issue with my parents being both doctors and my boyfriend also, almost. Um, my parents, who are from an older generation, they often complain about the preponderance of English, like everything is in English. Uh, maybe a text is actually in Italian, but the amount of English words that you find in it uh, makes it incomprehensible to someone who's specialized in, in that discipline, but simply doesn't know English. So, um, yeah, um, I usually try to stay within the limits uh, that I see online. Like, if something is in English, I will not push a, an Italian translation on it. But I like to make sure that something can, I mean, if something can be translated, I, I try to. Because I, I would have thought as well, I mean, I don't really know, but I feel like, isn't there a lot of like Latin as well in in medical stuff? Yeah, like that's how, the easy part, I think. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> like Latin and Greek are the easy part because they're almost identical in Italian. Sometimes words are organized differently. So maybe like one suffix or prefix attaches to a different word. I, I don't know how to explain this, but sometimes it's different. But the like the core of the word is the same. So if there is a Latin or Greek origin word, I, I, I thank all the gods, actually, because <laughs> that's easy. Like 99% of the time... Um, Italian is the same, so you just Italianize it, and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good, actually, then, isn't it? So, coming back to what Alessia was saying about the challenge with the with the terminology, and I've seen, Andrew, I've seen you've done some, like, Instagram posts where you have, like, different terminology or, like, explain different kind of medical, medical things on Instagram. How, like, how do you make sure that you're always using the, like, correct terminology? Because... I imagine that's probably quite important. In an ideal world, the client will give you a glossary and you can just follow the mm -hmm. glossary. But I'm not sure in the case of Alessio and Sylvia, but that rarely happens. Maybe like one in a hundred times, they'll give you a glossary. <laughs> or they'll give you a glossary that just doesn't have the terms you need. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> you really need to rely on your research skills. I found that Wikipedia is good to get a general idea. So if, because it's usually bilingual and in a lot of languages, but I never trust Wikipedia because anyone can put information on there. So I think that's a good place to start to get an idea and then that can help inform your research. And then I, what I personally try to do is trying to find the term used in a reputable journal or used uh, on a well-known medical website. And if I can find it, then I will use it. And sometimes you'll find that maybe the term just doesn't exist. Uh, usually in English, that's not the case, because usually, like uh, Sylvia was saying, 
people tend to just leave things in English. But sometimes you do just have to try and describe it or in the worst case scenario, you just need to say to the client, look, I don't know what this term means. Can you help me? And I've had some times where they've come back and said, no, even the client doesn't know what that means. And it just might be like a typo or something. So you've spent all this time researching a term that doesn't even exist. But it all boils down to how good you can, re- how well you can research terms. And that's just something that comes with practice. The more you do it, the better you get. And you know where you should be looking. For Italian, I think the, um, one of the best um, ways to, uh, to find terminology and to get a better understanding of what you're translating is also the um, university's research. So university usually publish a lot of articles and you can have a look at them. And uh, usually they're easier uh, to understand for me compared to, uh, of course, journals are usually written in English. So for um, for the Italian terminology, you look uh, on, on university research. Um, yeah, so for me, that's very helpful. Do you ever like find yourself being the person that comes up with the new term in your target language? Or would you never do that? Because surely at some point, like something does need to be translated like and there needs to be a term <laughs> I, I don't think I would feel confident enough to do that um, uh, no I mean not now at this stage <laughs> of my career uh, it's just been two years so I don't feel mm, confident enough uh, to invent a new term uh, usually I work with uh, translation agencies uh, some of them are specialized in medical translation so they just give you a glossary and so they exist um, so some exist and they give you like a good glossary um, especially with one uh, translation agency they give me usually the whole terms that I need to be added to the text and that's too easy sometimes <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, it happened to me that they give me, gave me the whole thing. And um, maybe if it's a client they've had for a long time, uh, they translated a lot of stuff for them uh, for their website, for example. Uh, they already have all in their term bases. And um, you can even look on their website that's already been translated into Italian. So. I mean, I guess you'd probably, if you did actually need to come up with the, the new term yourself, you'd probably have to check with the client and everything and make sure, <laughs> make sure they were happy for you to do that. I think it should be approved, like officially by some institutions. So, uh, yeah. I don't know how these things work. <laughs> yeah, and personally, um, I feel that, uh, like, the tendency of towards leaving everything in English is especially strong when you when it comes to new terms so it's happened to me that sometimes like something could have been translated into Italian quite naturally like it didn't need too much alteration or mm, sounding natural but uh, the guideline was like leave every new word in English if if it doesn't have like an approved official translation just leave it in English and I don't know. Uh, it, it's a pity sometimes because I, I always feel that it like hinders the, the comprehension of people who don't necessarily like um, know English to 
such an extent. Yeah. Uh, maybe for um, advertising campaigns, you can try to translate things because they're for a more general audience. So you can try to make the, the language as easy as possible, especially for uh, social ads. Because then uh, one of my clients told me, no, it needs to be very easy, especially the, the social uh, media posts. They have to be very quick, immediate for, um, for everyone. So there, maybe you can uh, dare to translate uh, and shouldn't leave it in English. So for, for a marketing uh, purpose, yes. If, if it's something that's going out to the general public, it, you're probably not translating a brand new word that's only like for something that's only just been discovered so I guess you're probably less likely to come across it in that situation maybe yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and about this I was going to say that for this specific reason um facebook groups are like excellent <laughs> I I'm part of some groups for personal reasons uh because I have a chronic illness. So I'm like in those groups just to learn more and see what other people are doing. But sometimes they are like a huge resource for terminology or maybe just to see how common people are calling things. So if you need to talk to like common people and not professionals, it may be a good option. Um, maybe don't copy like the grammar mistakes and <laughs> the wrong terms, but that's, that's great for me. And it works for many other marketing texts, I mean, in, in many areas, so not just medical. Yeah, I mean, English words are not only used for new things, some of them just are now in the, uh, in the Italian vocabulary. So maybe um, in that sense, maybe translating them for a marketing purpose could, uh, could make sense. Uh, because, uh, yeah, English now, especially in Italian in general, not only in the medical area, it, it's very... Uh, it's very common. It's very common to see English words. So maybe some clients just tell, just avoid using English words for this kind of texts. So, but yes, as Sylvia said, English is uh, the English terms are used for for new things um, more often. So, do you, do you need to have a uh, some kind of medical degree to be able to be a medical translator or like do you need specific training or I would say no but it certainly helps mm -hmm. have any of you got like a medical degree or have you <laughs> what what kind of training did you do before translating medical texts actually I know some people do a chemistry or a biology a biology um, degree when they want to translate medical content. Um, but for example, from my experience, um, at, during my, ba my bachelor's, the last year of my bachelor's, uh, during the two years of my master's, I translated mainly scientific and medical texts. So I, I did, I mean, it wasn't a master's in medic medical translation, but for English to Italian, for the translation, uh, specialized translation course, we did basically mainly we did uh, medical stuff and scientific research so we as we focused on that area i felt um confident enough to start translating for agencies i did uh translation tests uh for some agencies and then they were fine
fine. So I started working with them. I mean, at first, uh, they will give you proofreading tasks so that you can see how they work and how their texts are usually translated because every client wants it done a different way. But then they start giving you translation tasks. So even if you don't have a medical degree, but you you did a lot of medical translations during your studies, I think um, that's a good background to start with. Because I guess you need to have a certain level of knowledge or like experience in it before you start actually translating official texts and things. Because, I mean, I'd imagine that it's like the kind of field where it could be quite dangerous if someone just translates a medical text that doesn't really know like the specialization yet because if you get something wrong it could have a detrimental effect to somebody what do you do to make sure that you've got enough experience and knowledge in it before you start actually translating the text to make sure that you're not making any errors Hmm. i think also cpd uh you have to do CPD. So, for example, I bought the, this book about medical translation, which is a uh, sort of Bible. It's called Medical Translation Step-by-Step, Step, uh, Learning by Drafting. And it's one of the first things I did before uh, starting. Then there are also online courses. For example, for Italian translators, there is uh, STL, Formazione per Traduttori, which is translators, um, translators training. So, mm, yeah, they have a, a good uh, medical translation course. But I think that if you work with translation agencies, there will be a translator, a proofreader, then uh, the translation agencies will have a final look at your translation. So, of course, you're not alone uh, with the direct client. So, at first, I suggest working with... Um, with uh, agencies, um, because there's, there's always a proofreader, and if you get something wrong, uh, there's someone that will fix it. So, yeah, that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you get a lot of feedback then, especially when you're starting out? I found very useful the feedback I got after the translation tests. Uh, I passed uh, a few of them, and then they sent me the feedback, even if I passed it, but they said, okay, this is, it's better to do this this way, because everyone also has different uh, preferences, like every agency, uh, they will prefer one thing over the other, so they will give you feedback. And at the beginning, all the translation tests I did were very, very useful, because they, they gave me a better understanding of translation medical translations uh, at a professional level. So it was even a higher degree compared to my to what I did during my master's. So yeah, that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Andrew or Sylvia, do you have anything to add to um, this? I would agree with what Alessio said. CPD mm-hmm. is really important if you want to specialize as a medical translator. So you don't need any kind of formal qualification, but you do need to be really interested in medicine or anatomy, whatever it is you want to specialize within medical translation. And you need to be willing to do a lot of CPD when you first start out if you don't have a formal background or education in some Mm -hmm. kind of medical field. When I started out, I was similar to Alessio. I did a medical translation course 
but I did mine with training for translators and that was like a crash course in medicine and that was really helpful and from there I built I had the same book as well there's medical translation step by step and there was one part that I thought was really really helpful to help with like imposter syndrome and things like that which it I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was something along the lines of a medical translator needs to understand heart surgery, but they don't actually need to do it. So you don't need to be a doctor to be a medical translator. You just need to understand the process. So it's you have the same knowledge, but at a different level, if that makes sense. You don't need to use the knowledge to do something. You just need to describe it which is easier than actually doing it. So that's also something useful to remember. Yeah, um, that makes I would also add that the ability to like, research words, as Andrew was saying before, like, I, I think it's the most important part that you need to be able to look for things and find the correct translation for, for a term um, and also find... May, maybe you need to understand something just in the moment to be able to translate it correctly. It doesn't mean that you need to know how heart surgery works in general, like all types of heart surgery. Uh, maybe, of course, you need to know a bit about the structure of, of a heart, <laughs> how the blood gets in and out. But you don't need to know everything in detail. Um, you can just learn about it on the spot when you, when you need to translate it from other sources, of course, not from the text you're translating. Um, <laughs> and then apply that knowledge <laughs> to make sure that you're translating it correctly. Uh, like, it happened to me a few days ago. Uh, it was um, a market research on, I don't remember exactly, because I've done several ones that were quite similar to one another, but um, they were all of new medicines. And one of those had a mistake in the name in English, in the source language. And while researching the most appropriate translation for that term, I found out that they had added an extra, like, anti-something. And that was an extra because the word itself already conveyed the message. So it was, like, something that went against something that went against something else. And it didn't make sense, both in English and in Italian. So that was really useful to correct the source and the text, which is not something that happens very often to me, like... I don't find that many mistakes in source text, but when it happens, it's like it's nice even to point it out to the client. It makes it look good. <laughs> of course, uh, a good thing is to have uh, between your friends at least uh, a friend that studies medicine or is uh, does chemistry or biology. I have um, like a friend that is graduated in chemistry, and every time I have some doubts, I just ask him. Or I have a friend, um, my flatmate um, from my master's he's studying medicine and like the first medical translations I did I asked him to read them first before I sent them to my clients so uh, in general for every uh, area of uh, translation it's good to have friends uh, <laughs> that uh, specialize in that area so you can always ask them if you have doubts yeah, mm -hmm. don't be alone. That's it. <laughs> that's it. That's a good point. I've actually been doing that. Like lately, I've been doing quite a bit of like football content subtitling, which isn't my specialism. But like, 
the kind of stuff I've been doing, like I've been doing it all right. But luckily, like my boyfriend plays a lot of football and he knows all about football. So every time I'm like, I'm like, what? Like I'll like show him a diagram of the thing that they're talking about in German and be like, what? Like <laughs> what is going on in this diagram? What do you call this in English? <laughs> like so like I think that's probably helpful for like anything that anyone is translating yeah sometimes when I receive a medical translation I tell my boyfriend we have a new translation like to do because he helps me out so so much like he's the main reason why I'm kind of successful I think at this and so yeah a great deal of the merit is his because he's like he knows everything because he's just finished studying now so everything is quite fresh it's quite up to date so uh, it's very very useful but actually I found that medical like professionals usually they're not as precise with terminology as we tend to think like every time I ask my parents or my boyfriend how do you say that he gives me at least three different versions of something and he says like yeah you can use that interchangeably it doesn't change anything Uh, So mainly I just use him to make sure that the translation is formally correct, like nothing is completely wrong and that it's not clunky, like it it sounds medical um, in in style and in form and register, as Alessio was saying before also. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one thing that we've kind of touched on as well is like the... I feel like medical translation is maybe a bit more high risk like than other kinds of translation at least compared to what I'm doing like when I'm subtitling movies and stuff like if I get something wrong then it might not have as big of an impact as if you were to get something wrong with a medical translation so like because of that do you need like extra insurance to cover that um or anything Andrew I think you've got some extra insurance right Yeah, so I have professional indemnity insurance. It's Mm -hmm. not compulsory to have extra insurance if you want to be a medical translator, but I think it is a good idea just to have that extra cover, just in case. It's kind of like when you get car insurance. I know it's not quite the same because you have to get it by law, but you don't get car insurance thinking, oh, I'm going to have a crash next week. It's the same with medical translation. You don't get the insurance because you think, oh, I can't do this. But like you said, things could go wrong. I think it depends as well what kind of area of medical translation you work in. So with clinical trials, that's quite a high-risk area. But because of that, I found that the clients tend to have a lot of QA processes. So it's not you do the translation. It will be proofread, proofread. It'll be revised bilingually. It will go through so many stages that by the end, it's almost impossible that there will be a mistake in the translation. But I think it is it's worth remembering that it is a high-risk area. So that's why quality insurance is so important. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you, any of you do as well? Like, do you offer like QA as well as translation or do you all just do the translation? I do. Um, Actually, a lot of my work is QA editing and post-editing. I I think it's even more than actual translating at the moment. Um, 
I don't, I, I've never done QA in medical translation, actually. I usually do it for other fields. But yeah, I, I do editing and revision, uh, both bilingual and monolingual. Okay. We've talked, like, I think all of you have mentioned that you work with agencies. Um, do you just work with agencies? Are there lots of agencies that specialise in medical translation? Um, or do you also work with direct clients? There are a few medical translation agencies. I found a few of them uh, from the UK, so they asked me to translate from English into Italian. So I worked with uh, British medical translation agencies, uh, but there are also general translation agencies that ask me to do medical translations, especially one of them asked me to do the the, the medical marketing translations. Uh, but no, I... For me, I've never worked with direct clients and I, uh, I wouldn't do it for now. Or maybe I would look for uh, a medical, uh, another medical translator that could help me with the proofreading uh, stage. Um, so, yeah. That makes sense. What about um, Andrew, Sylvia? I would say in medical translation, for example, in a clinical trial, so... When I first started working as a medical translator, I did a lot of work on COVID-19 and it was in the middle of the pandemic. But in that, for that particular project or similar projects, they needed the information in as many languages as possible. So I don't think it would make sense for them to work, uh, for a direct client to contact you for that because you can only offer a limited number of languages. It makes more sense for the pharmaceutical company to contact one or two agencies who can then uh, translate that into 50 plus languages. So I think depending on the scope of the project, you're probably not going to get that kind of work from a direct client. Uh, personally, I don't have any direct clients for medical translation. All my direct clients have been for things like birth certificates, uh, or I was once asked to transcribe an interview for the Homeless World Cup, which was really interesting, but it was not related to medical translation at all. So I'm sure there are direct clients in medical translation, but I think if you work in clinical trials, you're probably not going to find that many. So it's quite a tricky, mm -hmm. a tricky one maybe to get established with a direct client base. Especially when you're starting out, it would be much easier just to approach agencies. That makes sense. I, I feel the same also with marketing and medical translation. It's very rare that maybe a, a client wants to start marketing their product in a country and they can, they can provide texts for just one translation from, <laughs> and they have... Um, so few texts that on, just one translator can translate them and only into one language. It's, I think it's quite rare. I mean, if you want to launch, launch a new drug, a new product, a new piece of equipment, a new machine, you need to... Usually it's quite a, a big thing, so you won't just ask one person to translate it all. I, I think it would be so much material and so... Like it, such a variety of texts to and languages that it wouldn't make sense to hire translators individually. 
mm-hmm. maybe with patient and reports. Like I, I've I've done, I've translated a mm, report from uh, Turkish into Italian, and uh, what well, it also included like prescriptions. So that was kind of one off. I mean, uh, it only happened it only happened once, and the client only needed it once but it was still through an agency like they didn't ask me directly to do it maybe i don't know maybe because the agency yeah they can handle things more smoothly they can like ensure that you have the translation editing maybe qa step all in order and and they will have the translator for sure they will have one person who can take care of that language pair i think <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, that makes sense. So you've all said that you also have other areas of specialisations that you do as well. How does medical translation compare to other kinds of translation in terms of like rates? Are you able to charge more because it's more technical and sensitive or does it not really vary that much? I would say yes, you can charge more. It's one of those tricky ones because translators don't talk about their rates, so you don't really know if you're charging more or not. But when I was at the ITI conference this year, a few people did ask me about rates. And in general, the people who were generalists were having a lower average per word rate than the medical translators. From the people I spoke to, we were charging about 2p more per word, which... Mm -hmm. Again, until, unless you speak to people, you don't realise that. But after that conference, I was like, wow, actually, uh, if you specialise, you can earn a little bit more money, especially if you specialise from the beginning of your career. That means you don't have to be part of these like translation hover stories where you're translating something that's for like one US cent per word. So it certainly is worth your while. Trans- uh, it certainly is worth your while specialising if you can and if you want to. I guess there's also quite a lot of money in like pharmaceuticals and that kind of thing, isn't there? So I'd think maybe that they would be able to pay more. I know it goes through agencies, but still like, because when you say specialising, I know that maybe specialising in like literary translation, for example, I don't know exactly, but I'd imagine that there's probably more money in medical companies that are paying for the translations compared to like... Um, maybe authors and stuff I don't know if that has an impact on it I'm just sort of sorry I'm just sort of like guessing things now yeah as you as you said not it goes through translation agencies so of course you, you can't ask a lot more to a translation agency because they generally uh, ask your rate so you say just one rate and I mean at least for me uh, it's always that rate uh, for uh, marketing and medical um, they I don't know if they would be willing to um, pay you more I mean once uh, it happened to me that I asked a certain rate to a very small translation translation agency and the the agency told me no I want to pay you more so they paid me like uh, three cents more Per word, and I think I also shared this info on the translators group we have. Uh, it was like one year ago, and I was so surprised. I said, "Oh, really? I never heard 
so much money for uh, for a translation and she was honest so maybe yeah as you said the the budget was higher because uh this agency worked with a um a medical equipment company and they wanted to market this um their product in italy so yes it, it can happen but usually if you work with agencies they only want one rate and you have to stick to it of course if it's a new client um I will never negotiate my translation rate for medical uh, content. I might uh, negotiate it if it's a more general text, I don't know, for maybe for marketing stuff. But for medical, I, I, I won't negotiate because it, it takes me more time to do all the research, to read all the articles, to look for the terminology. So I, I wouldn't say for me that I charge more, a lot more, but... Uh, I, I'm, I'm less willing to negotiate my rates if it's medical because you have to put a lot of effort into it, a lot of research. Yeah, I agree. And I also agree on the, on the specialization thing. Uh, I am having a lot of fun specializing, like really narrowing it down lately. So when an agency ask, asks me about a specific field, something, a service that they offer, I usually provide them with a list of topics that I've translated and text like and I, I think that I mean I, I they told me that it looks quite impressive when you can provide like p precise information on specific job jobs that you've done in the past so uh, and that helps giving uh, a better impression and being able to negotiate rates like higher rates but yeah and with some clients I would say that our hourly rate rates are all uh, with some clients, I would say that hourly rates are also great because in that case, they, pay, they do pay you for what, how long it takes you. So it doesn't matter that it's taking you one hour to research one sentence. It's fine mm, because the, that's the rate. But yeah, uh, I, I'd say that in general, specializing in niche fields that are quite technical will will make you able to, like, will give you the possibility to negotiate higher rates. Um, I see that with automotive uh, too, like, I, I translate a lot of content for tractors and, um, like, outboard engines and cars, electric vehicles, all that kind of stuff. And that really, it, it's an advantage point when you can say, I've translated this, this and that, and I can do it. And like I've actually done, I don't know, a hundred thousand words in that field, and and the same goes for medical. Mm -hmm. It's quite useful to be able also to give like a, a precise figure of what you've accomplished <laughs> to mm -hmm. this point. I've never thought to actually like track how many. Like I, I don't, I don't, or... I don't track. <laughs> I just give like an estimate because also because I do a lot oh, of post editing. Okay. So sometimes you get like. 30,000 words in a week and that's quite a lot if you need to translate them from scratch but for post editing I don't know it's actually fine at least for me so mm -hmm. um, and of course there are also matches uh, so sometimes there are a lot of 100% matches and uh, context matches so you, you don't like you don't post edit everything too so I have I, I haven't find, found a way to actually calculate like how many words I've translated so far because mm -hmm. it's so confusing there are so many variables mm. yeah I think I would 
well most of my work is subtitling so I can't <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I'm not writing down the number of words um but I guess yeah yeah that might be tricky so for anyone who's listening who is thinking that they want to become a medical translator trans translator sorry and specialize in the field um can you each give one piece of advice for those people who are listening yeah my advice is to pick something that really interests you uh in my case it was quite easy as andrew said especially if you start with a specialization right off when you when you start out it's it's quite easy to avoid feeling anxious and uh having that tension about rates about imposter syndrome and all that in my case it was picking specializations that i i was already comfortable in which <laughs> specifically came with the fact that i have this chronic illness uh called uveitis which affects the eyes i was also diagnosed with um carcinoma which is type of cancer so i mean of course this is not fun but they gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about several aspects of the human body and procedures and drugs and everything that you might need to become a medical translator and also um yeah my my upbringing also helped in that <laughs> i mean having all these doctors around me all the time was quite beneficial but of course you 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 cannot control that um so if you can maybe pick something that really stimulates you to learn more about that it can be something that affects you directly someone you love or just something that piques your interest really like it doesn't have to be an illness that you have but of course uh if it's something you can relate to or at least have a really deep interest in uh, i think it's way better than just picking something randomly just because you think that cardiology has a lot of money in it for example like uh it does if you if you really can specialize and be a valuable professional but if you can't uh you're just left with a specialization that you don't like and you're not motivated to pursue and mm, it will affect your work probably so yeah that and try to read as much as possible to get gather information if you like the subject it will be easier not easy but maybe easier to watch even youtube videos sometimes are quite resourceful like they're full of information and also i like to gather information at different levels so i like to listen to doctors and healthcare professionals of various like they have various um tasks in in a structure and i also like to listen to people who are patients and who have certain pathologies and they talk about it so you kind of learn from um well-rounded perspective it's not monodimensional good advice there alessio do you have any piece of advice you'd like to share so i I would say um as i said before a lot of cpd when you start out but also uh when you while you're working as a uh, medical translator so never stop reading stuff related uh, to what you translate so i i suggest uh to not have imposter syndrome because uh if you for example translated medical content for a while at uni or you worked with you've already mm, worked with mm, some agencies or you even did just you know 
10 tests and you, you got the feedback, it's fine. You can start working with them because when you work with agencies, they they help you with with feedback. They help you, I mean, with their process. Uh, as I said before, they start from the proofreading tasks and then uh, they go to the uh, translation tasks. So they um, they follow you in a certain sense. They they help you. So I would say, yeah, no imposter syndrome, and you can you can start uh, working as a as a medical translator uh, with them. Um, uh, what else? Mm, I don't. I think we covered a lot <laughs> during this uh, <laughs> this episode. So I don't think there's mm, a lot to add. But yeah, Andrew, did you have a a final piece of advice for everyone listening? I think Sylvia and Alessio have covered more or less everything. Uh, just my little bit to add to this would be join a professional organization as well. So I'm a member of the ITI and also of the ITI Medical and Pharmaceutical Network. And just being part of a group of other translators that specialize in the same thing as you is really helpful. So the medical network has their own uh, forum for members where you can ask questions and you don't feel like... um, what am I trying to say? And you can have, you can ask questions and you don't feel like you're putting yourself out to the wolves. Like I've seen on some public forums where someone will ask a very like genuine question and people will like take them, like tear them to shreds and it's like, oh, and then they probably feel like they'll never ask a question ever again. So it's nice to have that kind of network where you can ask and you can be confident and people aren't going to judge you because people, and it also helps as well. You see people with like 20 years experience asking questions and you're like, oh, well, it's not because I'm new, it's genuinely because it is a difficult field and that can help with the imposter syndrome that Alessio was saying as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, at any at any stage in your career, you're still not going to know everything at any point. Like, So that's, um, yeah, that's a get some good advice everybody thank you <laughs> um, so yeah if i mean if anyone listening has any more questions i don't know what else they could ask but if anyone has any more questions for any of you um or wants to get in touch what's the what's the best way to do that where can they find you online sylvia uh yeah i, I think the best way is through my LinkedIn profile, which is, uh, my name is Silvia Romano Translator, and you can find me that way. Or my email address, which you can also find on my LinkedIn profile, but it's translation at romanosilvia.com. Yeah, um, my LinkedIn profile is quite neglected at the moment, but uh, I I swear I I try to reply to messages at least. And I'm always happy, very happy to, to reply to any questions or like request okay um alessio what's the how can people contact you yeah linkedin and instagram now i also have a an instagram business page that i uh take care about not only linkedin so um it's quicker than linkedin i mean I, so you can um reach out to me to, uh, on linkedin to alessio armenise which is my name and surname, uh, and or on my IG uh, business page, which is Armenise Translation. 
usually uh, people that are starting out, they mm, t contact me on Instagram more than LinkedIn. So LinkedIn and email is more for uh, work, you know, potential clients. Uh, whereas uh, my, I connect with colleagues on Instagram now. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Andrew? For me, probably LinkedIn. I'm currently in the process of updating my website. So I'm changing some of like, my handles on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so if you mm -hmm. find me on LinkedIn, that'll have all the up-to-date information. It'll have my website if you want to find me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, or by email as well, which will be on my LinkedIn profile as well. Okay, perfect. I'll make sure to put all of that information in the show notes so that it's super easy for anyone listening just to click on it. And I'm also going to put the um, the book you mentioned the book that you both Alessia and Andrew mentioned and some of the other resources um when I listen back through this I'll add them in the show notes so it's easy for um people to just find those but yeah thank you so much for joining me on my podcast it's been really interesting I've certainly learned a lot um today <laughs> from you all so thanks thank you for having me thank you doc Thanks for listening to this medical translation episode of the Meet the Translator podcast. I hope you found it as interesting as I have. Thank you to Alessio, Andrew and Sylvia for joining me and sharing so many insights. Check out the show notes for links to get in touch with my guests and for useful resources from this episode. And if you have any questions or comments about the podcast in general, send an email to meetthetranslator at gmail.com. <laughs>